Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. Uh, I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a lifter, powerlifting, Highland Games. I run Strength Guild, and I just took over the state games for my state. So I had a meeting this week and oh. taking over the state games of powerlifting and weightlifting. So, oh, oh. nice. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, this is Dr. Mike Tenelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance. I uh, teach for Rocky Mountain University, a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and creator of the Flex Diet. I'm actually home this weekend, but not so much after that. So <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it while you can, I guess. Yeah, yeah the subarctic conditions here. Oof. Okay, everybody. We... Um... I had made a comment that this week we might do a plans and predictions episode. I think we're actually going to put that off just a little bit. We can't put it off too long. We don't want to be in, into February <laughs> doing our New Year's predictions. But uh, there's a ton of listener mail. Some of it was generated by our episode about um, testosterone replacement. Um, and then there was a there's one bit of news, too. So let me get through the, the science news, and then we'll... We'll dive into listener mail and just sort of make an episode out of that. There's some good Facebook discussions we could talk about, about two-a-days and, and things like that. So, Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, this was in the lay media all over the place, so I went and pulled the paper. Uh, there was a lot of talk about vitamin D, um, maybe not standing up to muster on certain things, but... My concern with this is this article, I think it opens up a bigger can of worms, and you'll see what I mean in just a minute. But um, this is by Cummings and colleagues. It's actually a response to a very recent article that vitamin D supplementation might not only fail to help your bone density, but it might increase risk of falling or fractures. Uh so it says a cautionary tale of vitamin supplements retold. Now, th th herein lies the BS to me a little bit is this author starts to roll. He makes some comments, some factual comments, but then he starts to speculate that, oh, vitamin D is going to be debunked in the same way the antioxidants were. And, you know, and and beta carotene actually worsened blood, you know, uh, lung cancer. And uh, anyway, I digress. It says um, two high doses, that is 60,000 IUs of vitamin D, D3 per month, uh, which can achieve a serum 25-hydroxy-D level of 30 nanograms per mil in 80% of patients, uh, which is a level that's been recommended uh, for reducing the risk of fractures, apparently isn't all it's cracked up to be. It says compared with a dose of 24,000 IUs of vitamin D3 per month, so if you think about divide that out by 30 days, right, that's 800 units a day, which is sort of that low-dose RDA kind of thing that a lot of people have moved up from. But it says compared with that 800-per-day type dose, the higher dose uh, had no effect on lower extremity physical performance and increased the risk of falls. 
Uh, and it talks about a previous randomized controlled clinical trial in women, uh, you know, match for age and that sort of thing or similar, um, showed a significantly increased risk of falls by 15% and fractures of 26%. So again, this really flies into the face of what we know about vitamin D, right? Which, or what we thought we knew. And again, I'm not willing to throw all of it out with the bathwater just yet, but that vitamin D should help you absorb calcium in your intestines. It should help you know, uh, osteoblastic activity, right, bone building at the bone itself, at the site of bone. So absorbing and depositing calcium better. Uh, vitamin D, has, I've seen some meta-analyses where it was linked to strength and, and that sort of thing, especially people who are low D to begin with, which almost everybody in the United States is probably right now if you're not supplementing. But again, this it just it's controversial. It says a theoretical possibility, and again, for these surprising increased risks, uh, has been raised that periodic administration of high doses of vitamin D accounts for the increased risk of falls and fractures. The hypothesis, however, should be tested in placebo-controlled trials uh, showing that a daily dose of 2,000 IUs, for example, uh, reaching serum levels in that 30 nanogram per mil range, reduces the risk of falls and fractures. In other words, I think they're questioning that the body doesn't know what to do when you know, the doctor gets, just gives you a giant shot uh, of 60,000 units instead of just doing the typical, like, you know, maybe 2,000 IUs a day, almost like a nutritionist might do. Uh, and I've had similar discussions uh, with an endocrinologist here in the area about uh, B12. Uh, so it says, the trial in this issue, Journal of the American Medical Association, the trial in this issue had no placebo group it was talking about either. Because, again, it should talk about risk of falls. Now, this is where I think it starts to get editorialized. Clinicians should not recommend vitamin D supplements for other putative health benefits. There is no evidence from meta-analyses of randomized clinical trials that vitamin D supplements reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or cancer. In addition, a recent trial found that 1,000 IUs of vitamin D per day with or without calcium did not decrease the risk of colon cancer or recurrent adenomas and those with a history of colon adenoma. Further, it says the vitamin D story seems to be following a familiar pattern observed with antioxidant vitamins. Enthusiasm for the health benefits of the vitamin supplements is coupled with the belief that quote-unquote vitamins are inherently safe and reinforced by studies showing essentially that healthy people have higher vitamin levels. Uh, then RCTs and meta-analyses proved that these supplements, again, antioxidants in this case, in fact, increase mortality, such as beta-carotene or vitamin E, or have no health benefits, such as vitamin A or vitamin C. Uh, so anyway, to me, a lot of this just got kind of blown up from, oh, there might be increased risk of falling, or it didn't help reduce fractures from falling, whereas maybe exercise interventions do, you know, and that sort of thing. I don't know why any physician would think you could pop a pill and it would keep you from falling uh, unless, yeah. right? I mean, agility and balance and all these other things from exercise training, sure. But pop a pill? And and, the, and again, so it kind of rolls from risk of falls to bone density and then to this, this, this. And the guy just kind of rolls with it. Uh, I don't know. Mike, what are your thoughts on this stuff? Like big whacking doses of you know, <coughs> shot once a month? Is it, you know, do we need to look at, compare that to daily oral intake and what's your opinion on vitamin d in general 
Yeah, it's it's one of those things where if you go back in time, I did a presentation a couple of years ago for uh, some physicians <clears throat> and some uh, registered dietitians. And even at that time, that was uh, probably 2014, there's a couple of things in the media that said, oh, vitamin D doesn't work, you know, vitamin D is toxic and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think with the more data we found that it's not the panacea we thought it was going to be, but no single nutrient, is, unless you're like have a frank deficiency, no single nutrients ever really panned out to be the panacea to fix everything. So that's kind of a unrealistic expectation to begin with. Um, for strength and power, eh, it's kind of mixed. I mean, it's like most nutrients, right? If you're low, yeah, you can see some benefit. If you're already pretty good, you know, you're probably not going to see much of a big, you know, benefit there. In terms of toxicity, like acute toxicity is almost zero. As far as I can find, maybe there's one or two now, but there's basically zero deaths due to toxicity. I did a rough estimate once and it's like the, I pulled it up here. The LD50 of vitamin D in dogs is like right over 3 million IUs per kilogram. So mm. like the acute dose to kill someone. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty massive. There's been a couple of case reports where supplement companies put the wrong dose of vitamin D in. And they did have um, some subjects were super high off the scale on vitamin D. But, you know, other than possible calcium deposits and joints, there wasn't really much of an issue from there. I'm not saying that, you know, go out and just take a crap load of vitamin D and you're fine. But the point they had about a thousand IUs per day. If you're deficient, that's going to do almost nothing to get you back into a normal range. Yes, right. So some of the studies, they say, hey, we took this group and we split them. We gave a thousand IUs to this one and, you know, none to this one or even a placebo. Oh, look, a thousand IUs didn't cure their cancer <laughs> or whatever they're looking at. It's like, well, if you're really deficient, a thousand IUs a day is going to do almost nothing to get you back into that normal range again. You know, Mike, so. you have a good point, too. Uh, they were mentioning recurring adenomas, right? Right. Like colon cancer risk. It, it's like, but this is recurring. You're not trying to prevent something. Like you said, you're almost literally saying, oh, vitamin D didn't cure cancer or, you know, precancerous yeah. <laughs> lesions. It's like, well, the person already has it. Like, I, I, that's a different question to me. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah and if you're so, low, there's a, a study from Veith that's back in the 90s. You're going to need, like, just looking at the curve, it's this massive shaped steep curve. So, a thousand IUs, you're barely moving the needle on circulating 25-hydroxy levels. Yeah, that graph, I think. Yep. Uh, 10,000 is about the inflection point of where it starts to go up. You know, so 5,000 to maybe even 10,000 a day, you know, for a short period of time, four, six, eight weeks. You know, under your physician, that may be where you need to be if you're super deficient to get the levels back to normal. Um, and last thing, too, if you look at some of John Cannell's stuff, uh, he's got some things that optimal levels in people who are sun worshipers, right, or people who are out in the sun a fair amount in warmer climates, you know, they sit around 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter. So they're, they're a little bit on the higher side. Mm -hmm. And the nice part I like about that data point is that you can't produce too much vitamin D for being in the sun. Right. You can get sunburned and you can have all sorts of other things that are bad that happen, but you can't overproduce uh, vitamin own. D. Right, your own so endogenous. I think that's kind of a, 
you know, a good data point to look at what's kind of a, a rough natural level, quote unquote, I hate the word natural, but, right. you know, level where people may be, you know, and I don't know. So I guess if I'm looking at my own personal blood work, if I'm like 40, 50, 60, yeah, that, that's probably where I personally feel it's going to be okay. But again, mm-hmm. talk to your physician and go from there. You know, I'm bad. I'm a bad boy. I don't really get my 25-hydroxy-D levels checked regularly. I just, this time of year, I take, just out of convenience, like a 2,000 or 4,000 IU gel cap of vitamin D every day. You know, I, yeah. I just I just think there's, it's one of those things where it has rationale, such rationale behind it. Uh, I know just because it's logical doesn't mean it's physiological, but, you know, People talk about how maybe flu season hits when it does because vitamin D levels are down and people's yeah. immune systems are taking hit. Again, you know, short days, very little sun exposure on your skin, covered up, and and it just it seems like that. You know, there's that data always suggestive, like just on the on the edge of interest to me that vitamin D could raise testosterone levels. You know, in um, low T people, at least a little, or that yeah. uh, it might have some relationship to strength you know, and, and that kind of thing. Um, always, again, enough to keep me interested. And like I said, it's just logical. I would think that, do I take vitamin D in the summer? No, I don't. Why would I? I mean, it's not like I'm a sun worshiper because of my family, you know, history of melanoma and whatnot, but I still get plenty of sun, I think on my face and arms or, you know, I mow the lawn in a tank top or something and I'm set for the week, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, the, it's interesting that this is back in the news and they're just kind of rolling with it, right? So it didn't help with falls and then, oh, and then, oh, and it therefore didn't help with fracture risk. Well, okay, people aren't, now I'm not saying, I'm just saying falls and fracture risk are related here, right? And and again, a lot of this stuff isn't a direct intervention like like the one author was saying. Let's compare the big whack of vitamin D once or twice a month with daily intake. Maybe there's something about, you know, your your body expects it in a non-pharmacologic way, you know, more of an oral way. And that, that's what I find funny because, I, again, I've had a conversation about B12 and similar, very similar conversation yeah. with physicians. And maybe there's something, I mean, you're meant to consume that, like consume it, like through your mouth, not through a puncture in your skin. So maybe the nutrition way, it seems more modest, but maybe that, you know, Slow and steady is better. So I guess we're going to have to see what happens with a lot of this stuff. But I am not ready to just toss out my vitamin D, especially this time of year, uh, because of that. And like I said, it was all over the lay media. So Yeah. And one other quick point I do on that, too, is that if it's a client who's in a more tropical area and their vitamin D comes back from their doc and it's low, I'm not going to tell them just take vitamin D. I'm going to say, well, let's look at your lifestyle. Do you go outside? Are you ever exposed to the sun? Are you afraid of the sun? Are you just spending a, you know, every waking hour in your cube? So now you're not moving. Your eyes aren't seeing light. You've got all sorts of other things that we can target via just simple lifestyle changes, go for a walk, things like that. Um, so I, I do still look at what are the lifestyle implications of that. And, you know, if you're living in kind of the Midwest, like we all are in the winter, yeah, you could run outside buck naked and you're not going to get any vitamin D at that time of the year. So right, yeah. taking it as a supplement form makes a little bit more sense then. Yeah, just eat it. Yeah. Uh, Phil, uh, do you have? Do you see a lot of vitamin D use? I know you're not a big supplement guy yourself, but do, you, do your 
people do this in the winter or any time of the year? I can't say that a ton, but I think some do. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more prevalent now than it has been in before. Mm-hmm. You know, the past five years it's been. And like you said, I think it's I think it's just something smart to do. You know, there's enough evidence pointing towards that it might help that uh, it's worth taking. You know, I mean, yeah. especially here in the, you know, we're in the Midwest. It's not exactly sunny all winter long. So. <laughs> That's right. So. Okay. Yeah. So. Makes sense to me. You know, it's like Mike said, it's low toxicity. <laughs> it's not that expensive. You know, it's oh, one of the, it's literally a hormone, you know, because as Mike was alluding to, your body can make it, you know. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's an inexpensive, what might be mildly testosterone boosting in some people, mildly strength enhancing in other people type of over-the-counter hormone. So again, low risk, low cost. I don't know. But it's just funny the way that they're like, oh, and see, and then they start drawing the lines with antioxidants and all that. Like, see, it actually makes you worse. And it, all right, can we just, I don't know. I don't, it's funny how dietary supplements, they rise, they get this emotional rise out of people, that, you know, the kind of anti-supplement zealots. And I, again, you don't want to be too credulous in the fitness industry. We love to embrace something new. Oh, whey protein is anabolic or creatine is anabolic or vitamin D, you know, and but yeah and anyway so that's the controversy with that stuff in the news yeah and one last point i have on that i haven't seen any direct data on that maybe you guys have about the timing of vitamin d if you're taking it as an oral dose if you think about it you're getting it primarily from sunlight and i know it's a lot of sleep supplements it's kind of cool to put vitamin d in there now which may be helpful if people are very deficient in it and that can kind of mess with sleep and some other processes but i just wonder if we'll find a you know kind of a chronobiology effect of it in the future, since we normally are going to get exposed to it during the day, not at night. Oh, yeah. Well, being a fat soluble and the whole pharmacokinetics being a little bit slower and right. more steady. I don't. Yeah, it'd be curious though, like you said. Or yeah, I haven't seen anything on it yet, so who yeah. knows? Yeah. Okay. Um, let me bring up some questions here. There's just so many that, that built up on us here. Um. This one is from Jason. He says, question. It looks like this is via Instagram or Twitter. I can't even tell. (laughs) Um, I was listening to one of the podcasts, and it was mentioned that after fat loss, the body will store fat rapidly and that we should take it easy on the carb intake immediately after dieting or the body will restore fat quickly. Can you advise on how to handle that situation and how that mechanism works in the body? How long does the body stay in that state? And again, I think he's referring to sort of a greedy storage kind of state. Uh, and how to bring the body out of it without gaining fat. All right, Jason, this is such a loaded... This is a, this could be multiple episodes. But in one sense, I can tell you, I don't have the authors in front of me. I didn't pull the paper. But uh, you, you do have certain enzymes that help with the uptake, for example, of fat from the blood and into cells for storage, like lipoprotein lipase. I know LPL activity is increased after a period of, you know, uh, fat loss, weight loss, low-cal intake, that kind of thing. So it's partly enzymatic. It's partly hormonal. Uh, These things are all interconnected. Um, But what you're really asking is, how do I refeed without getting fat, right? How do you lose it and kind of keep it down, and how long does that take um, the only thing I can really say is if you lose more than about 10% of your body mass, 
that's where historically people get a little bit more concerned about maybe hold it there for a while. So, you know, 200-pound guy, that's 20 pounds. You get that off you, you might want to hold it there for a while instead of just trying to plummet your weight 50 pounds. And again, this is relative to your body size. Um, but that 10% up or down kind of thing is often used as sort of a rule of thumb. But I don't think anybody really knows. Like, here's how long you need to hold this new body weight before it, your, you know, your body recognizes a new set point or your body's less greedy you know, to store stuff. We have made comments in just recent episodes that you don't want to just refeed on Dairy Queen blizzards five a day, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, and I, I know, I mean, I think Lane Norton talks about this quite a bit. A lot of the talk about reverse dieting and refeeds and how do you bring your calories back up? Uh, what are your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I mean, I, I've, I've noticed in clients like the 10% mark just anecdotally appears to be a pretty good one. Um, so I was up near 240 and I dropped down to 220, which yeah, it took me around six-ish months. But I didn't really want to lose any strength or anything along the way. And then I just kind of sat there for quite a while. And recently I've gone back up again over the, the holidays, but kind of on purpose. Um, the other part I've noticed too is that a lot of times people forget how less they tend to move, especially as you get more extreme. So if you're, you know, preparing to do a physique show or something like that, we've talked about in the past that you just tend to not move around nearly as much, right? Or that neat, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis. I like that people look at step count and just some marker of just non-exercise activity. Just movement, yeah, physical just movement. movement mm -hmm. Because it's it's one of those things that's a sneaky thing because a lot of it can be unconscious, but people just don't realize that they're moving less. So I think that does account for a lot of it. And then, you know, I get lots of interesting emails on this, but I'm still a fan of the lower intensity, you know, sometimes semi-fasted cardio. Not that it's going to be anything magical like that, mm -hmm. but if you're lifting, you know, hard, let's say four days per week, yeah, get up, go for a walk in the morning or, you know, go do some work on the rower in the morning or some lower intensity work. Agreed. I just find that it yeah. appears to work better. It's not going to interfere with your weight training. Most of the time you feel better. Most of the time your aerobic base has probably deteriorated a little bit. So I just find there's a fair amount of benefits with that. And some of it may just be purely psychological that people feel like I'm doing exercise today. So I'm going to be a little bit better with my nutrition too. Or some people have an off day and they're like, ooh, Dairy Queen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know we all are fans of just sort of walking. It, it, frankly, when you say, like, I, I like this sort of mostly fasted kind of thing. It's a it's a fat-specific calorie drain in the morning, right? So yeah. when, if you are refeeding and you're worried about fat gain, it'd be one way to keep your fat balance, not just calorie balance, but fat balance, if you will, sort of in check. Uh, uh, my question for Phil, though, is about powerlifting like you guys you guys don't always do it this way you know you will crash your body weight way way down and then blow back up and um are there health ramifications to that i mean uh, what are your thoughts about this whole idea of be careful with the refeed and how does that fit with a powerlifter's life um i guess like the, the the easiest way to state this is um, like we've talked about before, I mean, excelling in performance has nothing to do with health. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, elite athletics has nothing to do with health, but, um, 
I don't know. I mean, for the most part, most of the big crashes are very, uh, they're very short, and it's not actually dieting. It's a lot of water reduction. Okay. So it's a lot of yeah. dehydration. Um, a lot of those big cuts like that. Um, the people I've worked with that have done, like, actually lowered their body weight is done over time. Like, I'm working with a guy now. We're going to take uh, some time to drop off, like, 30, 40 pounds. And that'll, that'll, be a, <laughs> that'll be over months, not over weeks. Right. Like, yeah. I've, I've dealt with people where, okay, we need to lose 30 pounds this week. Okay, well, you're not going to do that by diet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's all, you know, dehydration and things like that. But, uh, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, like for me, like when I'm when I'm getting ready for a meet, there's a big push up, and it literally has nothing to do. Sure, I hope some of it's muscle, but I know, like I sit around two, two fifty five, two sixty in the off season. I get ready for a meet, and about eight weeks out, my goal is to be two eighty. Mm. So, I'm cramming as much food as I can in. Um, but I know when I'm hitting. If I'm squatting 600 at 250, just by adding 25 pounds, you know, 650, 700 is probably there. Uh, you get a lot of more tissue around the joints. Uh, you're you're overhydrated. Um, you just feel better as far as as far as lifting heavy weights. You feel horrible as far as daily life. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, that's when I know I'm ready for me. It's like, whoa, those four stairs sucked. <laughs> Damn, seven hundred pounds feels good. That's funny. <laughs> you're so specific. You're specific to you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm basically you're eating just for that. And I'm a big. I really like that route of it. Um, I don't. I'm not a big fan of the the huge power lifter year round. Uh, because I think that just that does greater. That has greater health risks than than okay once twice a year cramming it for yeah. a meat. Blowing up, you know, over a short period of time, um, not chronically being just massively overfed. So, um, I'm a big, a big fan of that. Is like staying a little more athletic most of the year. Let's say 85, 90 percent of the year, and then over those short stints of eight weeks, uh, cramming it in. So, but yeah, again, I mean, the, the first thing I drop back to is just has nothing to do with. I, I know eating like gas station burritos and ho hos and stuff has nothing to do with my health, but it does help me lift more weight so yeah and let's face and I, it i mean bulking it can be fun for a while before it becomes yeah, oh, a yeah. chore and then it gets horrible yeah so uh, yeah you know uh, uh, you know it's worth pointing out too and, and mike's familiar with a lot of these data old data from starvation and refeed studies and stuff yeah. back in the day but even if you don't lift when you gain weight like you just talked about feel like 30 pounds there's yeah. a substantial amount of that that is actual lean mass. It is not 100% fat mass. And if you yeah. throw in training into that picture, it gets even better. So when people talk about why do you bulk, you know, I've, I, back when I was competing, uh, one of the professors said, why do you, you put on like 30 pounds in the fall, then you take it all off in the spring, and then you're, you're no further ahead. But no, my body comp is further ahead, right? If you can put on, let's say you get lucky and you put on like 60, 40 uh, lean mass to fat mass, or even 70 or 80 to 20 fat mass, you know, lean to fat ratio. Then when you peel it off, if you diet slowly enough and with the morning cardio or whatever, you, however you do it, you're hopefully the, the proportions are reversed and you're preferentially removing more fat. You know, that's, that's the, that's the sport, right? That's the point of all of it. I mean, if, if the aspect of fitness, uh, in powerlifting is strength, muscular strength, then the aspect of fitness in bodybuilding is 
body composition. But both of those sports are trying to manipulate this stuff. And yeah, it is, it's important to remember that you're never going to gain or lose 100% muscle or 100% fat. That's just not how it works for daily life or hormones and physiology or anything else. You're just trying to get those percentages you know, in a preferential way. You're trying to partition nutrients into muscle tissue as much as you can. Um, yeah, there's going to be some fat gain. You know, and, and again, I, I wish I could give some number about here's how long you need to hold this new set point, you know, um, before the enzymes and the hormones and your brain neuropeptides and everything else just resets for you. Th that's a really hard question. I think it's very individual, which is why we don't have good answers for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned no, I, that the classic study from Levine was they overfed people by a thousand calories per day for eight weeks. And these are people who are not exercising per se. They just said, just don't change whatever habits you're doing now. They were not athletes. And up to 50% of what they gained in some subjects was lean body mass. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and again, it's an eight week study. So, it, you know, that's probably going to taper off. But it, the first time I saw that, I was like, holy crap, that's insane. I wouldn't have expected it to be that high, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, and I, but I mean, as far as going up and going down, I mean, I agree with you, Lonnie, and the, in the, the, the route you guys take. Even when I'm having people go up, like my ladies, it's usually a 10 pound jump. And for my bigger guys, let's, okay, let's go up 20 pounds. Let's stay there. Let's see what happens. Um, if we're talking long term gain, not like getting ready for meat. Yep. So if like, if his goal is, I got a 215 pound guy and he wants to be 242, well, we need to get you to like 250. So over the long term, we're going to slowly jump up. Uh, you know, say 20 pounds at a time and, and get there. So, right. I, I, and you're right. I mean, where the rubber hits the road, it's good to talk about different case examples and stuff. I mean, last year I lost 20 pounds and yeah. I stayed there. I decided not to go any further. I, I kept going down. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull one day of like interval cardio out. And then I kind of plateaued that, right. My energy balance must've been right, whatever. And I'm just holding it here and I'm still here. And I think it's because I didn't continue any any lower, you know, because then I think like an old endocrine prof I used to have, have, he used to say, you have to nudge biological systems to get them to adapt. If you push too hard because of negative feedback and all this sort of stuff, your body will balk. And I just, of course, I'm applying everything he's saying, not just from general endocrinology, but to to what we do, to our purposes, mm -hmm. right? Like fat loss and, and what happens. And Okay. Uh, I have one more before we go uh, to break. Uh, after break, we're going to address some of these hormone replacement questions that, that kind of flowed in. I think we might differ on this one, you guys. Um, maybe me versus Mike even most, but we'll see. So this is from Twitter from I'm Not a Doctor. He says, love the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for the hard work. Uh, I would like your thoughts on health coaching certificates. Uh, are they viable future career paths or are they worthless? Um, I, I think he's saying I would be adding it to a public health degree, um, moving from population health to individual wellness. Thanks. Uh, my thought is on a, a lot of these, I, uh, my concern is that we have a lot of people who think that they're health coaches or lifestyle coaches or, or nutrition coaches and they just don't have the depth of background. They, they go get a certificate and there are hundreds and they think that they can actually, you know, be a, anything from a nutritionist to a counselor, 
right? And I mean, these are things that my wife and I went to school for for a very long time, and that's why that's my bias. I think there's a lot of these things you, you hear all the time on Facebook or Instagram that, oh, I'm a life coach, I'm a nutrition coach. I'm like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> the, the, the flip side of it is that, I mean, I've had this debate with John Berardi, right, who I've known for ages, and, and he's like, well, certainly some knowledge is better than none. And I'm like, yeah, but a lot of these certifications, they don't allow you to practice in, in most states, right? You're actually committing a misdemeanor crime if you're doing nutrition that, that fades into assessment. Like you weigh this much, eat this many grams of protein per kg, you know, anything that like assessment or meal planning or that kind of stuff. You know, I even had a, a student, uh, I'll just say be vague, in the last year took one of my nutrition courses and he says that, you know, a lot of this stuff was fascinating, but it still didn't show me exactly what to tell people on my sports teams, what to eat and how to eat it and when. And, <laughs> and I'm never going to tell you that mister, unless you go get licensed to practice. Uh, there's a reason that we have licensure to protect the public. Now at the same time, I know that gets, you know, you get these people sort of mine, mine, you know, my scope of practice, no mine. And I don't want to be like that either, but I am not a fan of most of these um, life coaching, nutrition coaching uh, certificates. I, I think it could, people are confused. They're not just doing it for a general, you know, a little bit of knowledge is better than none. I don't think they're doing it for personal enrichment. I think they're doing it for career reasons, like um, I'm not a doctor suggests. Uh, so I would say if you have a, a license to practice something in a state that requires it, yeah, you could go get one of those I'm, if you're interested. But again, it would be more of a personal enrichment thing. It doesn't let you set up shop and open a practice. And like I said, this, this crosses into counseling too, right? When people use the word coach and they put that after nutrition or life, lifestyle, it's, they feel like, oh, now it's unregulated and I can do whatever I want. You know, and they, a, a lot of times they're, they're too young or too uneducated to have, you know, the cake. They got the icing, but no cake. And I think that that does put some people at risk. Uh, Mike, though, you actually have some nutrition certs, and I'm sure you yeah. have some thoughts on that. Yeah, it's – I mean, in general, I actually agree with you. I mean, I think a lot of it is just such a debacle because the pro and the con is that the barrier to entry is almost non-existent, right? And obviously there's licensure and there's things you can't do, and it varies from state to state. Uh, but – you can still educate people on nutrition. <clears throat> now, how far you take that in terms of education gets really messy, right? Well, because like what right. you said, you may be doing some type of assessment and then you get into a prescription. So like when I'm teaching students, like a couple of words that should probably never come out of your mouth and one of them is prescription, unless you're talking about a prescription that they got from their physician or somebody else. Um, so for years I said, I'm not, you know, contributing to that. I'm not doing a certification. I tried actually doing CEUs for trainers and a bunch of other stuff. And at the end of the day, I did actually opt to create a certification because one of the things that I realized is that sadly, for better or worse, most trainers don't care too much about continuing ed, but they seem to be very interested in certifications, which is probably why there's so many of them out there. <clears throat> so I'm like, well, if that's what they're interested, maybe I can get them to <clears throat> do something that would be better. The The hardest part I had with the whole thing was 
where is that line between okay you definitely want them to move in the you know right direction you want them to have something that's kind of specific but you can't cross that line where it's becoming prescriptive or you're doing these advanced assessments um, even for health and wellness that's a big gray area so it was tricky for me to figure out okay how do you when you work with a client give them something that's specific so they know what it looks like but not sort of cross that line uh, into assessment. Yeah, it's the depth of intervention that's the problem, right? right. If they would say, no, I'm just going to screen you here, and they would use careful language, right? Like one of the mm -hmm. ways to deal with this is instead of putting people on some template diet that may or may not apply to them, I mean – I, yeah, I, I I used to get uh, – I actually had a debate once with Charles Staley about this. Like he said, well, <laughs> templates templates are certainly better than no plan. And I'm like, okay, uh, uh, maybe or maybe they're worse. Than, <laughs> yeah, maybe they're even worse than no plan. Uh, but, the, <clears throat> yeah, it's that depth of intervention that's, that's my concern with a lot of that kind of stuff because people are doing it to open up shop and actually make it part of their practice, mm -hmm. part of their business. They're not just doing it to learn more. You know, uh, and that kind of stuff. And I mean, there are standards of practice in nutrition, just like there might be in dentistry or medicine or nursing. You know, there are there are things that have taken decades to develop, like the nutrition care process and that sort of thing. Um, and it kind of standardizes the field and ensures a level of care. And the problem is you can't just have people come along and they start making shit up and it drives me nuts. Like they'll create a certificate oh, yeah. and be like, this is the anabolic phase and this is the flow phase. And, and they just kind of make <laughs> up this stuff and they try to relate it to workouts and give it their own names yeah. and their own nomenclature. And I'm like, oh, yeah. damn, please sit down before you hurt yourself. We've done yeah. this for many years. A lot of the pitfalls I see you falling into have been thought through and fixed ages ago. And you're just doing this because you want to have your own it's like an ego stroke. You know, I just want to stroke my own ego and have my own, uh, you know, uh, system uh, in place. And I, that's that's where I, I, I'm very wary of most of those kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. And I purposely targeted people that are a little bit more intermediate to advanced. And I told people basically they're like, if the first question out of your mouth is what letters can you put behind your name, don't take it. I actually don't want your money. I don't want you in the course. Yeah. Because I want people who want to be at more of an advanced level, not just someone who's looking for what is the minimal thing I can do to get in the door to just start doing stuff. Me, uh, me, me. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, let's face it. People can use language like, you might consider this, like, or research suggests that people like you. So if you start yeah. with stuff like that, ask the client, you might consider this. That way you're actually not prescribing. You're saying you might want to consider a 20-gram scoop of whey protein after you lift. You know, Or yeah, research yeah. suggests people like you benefit from that. You could see that in that kind of language, it is cautious enough that you're actually uh, – you know, the irony here is after I got licensed to, to do this, I thought, yeah, yeah I'm going to do meal plans. I'm going to do those, all this stuff. I tend to use language like that anyway for liability yeah. <laughs> reasons you know you might want to consider this or i mean we have freedom of speech in this country for god's sake you know it's not like only a dietitian or physician can open his mouth or her mouth and talk about food um but yeah i yeah. there are too many and exercise is, is similar to that right hundreds of certs that uh, i i think they do is, is it as much harm as good Phil, what do you think? Well, yeah, and that's what I was going to come down to. I mean, the, the, to answer the question, 
as far as will it help your career? Yes, it probably will. Well, you, you know, yeah. because the public doesn't know the difference between right. your degree and that certification paper. No. And that's the, that is an issue. Now, is it ethical? Is it, will people in like Lonnie's position look down upon you? Yes. <laughs> but will it be helpful? Yeah, probably will. The, the sad fact, and it could be the sad fact is, yes, it probably could be helpful. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, because people don't know the difference. But, you know, we have a very good friend that I, I won't say his name on the air here, but before he got his degree, um, he would help people with meal plans and stuff. And it was always, like you said, it was in, in the wording. If it was me, I would probably yeah. try. Yeah. 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 You know? yeah. So, uh, and that's what it was all, you know. Well, and let's face it. The flip side of this is I, I know I can't think uh, actually of a single clinical dietitian who I would trust to get, you know, someone ready for a physique competition um, yeah. as far as their knowledge base and how to d set up a diet and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So in that sense, you get a lot of these sort of uh, – bodybuilding coaches if you will and honestly a lot of these guys uh they get the results they do because they're sort of the i think i suspect they're just the drug connection <laughs> on some level <laughs> for the client they uh, say oh it's my nutrition plan it's my training uh, well maybe yeah. part, partly uh you know but yeah so you got to think about the the actual experience level as well because if you're getting general you know nutrition advice like a general practitioner someone with a license i i really am dubious that that's going to help you get on stage at 5% body fat, you know, and, and that kind of, again, unless you, you, they've got both the experience and, you know, and that training, but. Yeah. One last thing, if I give out a, a shameless plug that I don't make any money off of, or maybe I do, I haven't seen a dime from it yet, but um, PTA Global was awesome people there. I used to work for the Mindset Performance Institute. So they ended up picking up the mindset level one and level two course. Um, I did all the research for it. Uh, Brian Grasso, Kerry Campbell. Kerry Campbell's a licensed um, a therapist. They did or counselor. Um, so they did the rest of it. It's I think really good. Obviously, I'm biased, um, but when you're health coaching, I found the biggest issue is usually mindset and how do you work around that. You know, you're not trying to be a counselor, but you're trying to figure out what are the best ways for people to implement what they're doing. I mean, even what John Berardi does at Precision Nutrition, which I love, you know, a lot of that is still very habit-based. You know, a lot of it, how do you get the person to do what they're doing? And if they're not doing it, why are they not doing it? And I find that that can be very helpful. All right. Well, there you go. I mean, I, yeah, that's a that's a ball of wax. We've had whole episodes on, on certifications. You might want to go listen. I mean, yeah, the truth is a, a lot of the questions that we get, it's it's fun to revisit them. Uh, but after nine years, I guarantee there's a whole episode in the Iron Radio archives you could probably oh, yeah. find. Oh yeah. So, all right. I, I know it's late in the game, late in the show here, but let's let's go to break. We're going to come back and address some of these hormone replacement therapy questions. Hey, listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You can simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world 
and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. We're wading through tons of questions. We might not get to all of them today, but we're going to try to tackle some of these hormone replacement questions. Um, and this next one, I think, is a good one for Phil because he has a lot of uh, ladies training in his gym. Um, we'll just say this is from M. Uh, she says, I've just signed up as a subscribing supporting member. I haven't supported you monetarily for a, a while. And she goes on about some of that, but says, I, I love listening to you all and have learned quite a bit. Thank you for all you do. So that's nice. Um, the New Year's episode on TRT left me wanting even more information. Uh, would you consider having a Q&A on testosterone replacement therapy for women uh, competitive or those who are simply using it for aging, uh, etc.? cetera? Um, for example, what ranges... Should women attempt to stay within when using TRT, bioidentical hormone replacement for health? Um, it says it was mentioned in the podcast, just because a level reaches low normal doesn't necessarily mean it's time to cut back or stabilize that level. Uh, for women, the concern for those of us skirting the edge and not wishing to have vocal changes, but are happy to enjoy additional benefits like physical strength, etc., can you speak to this topic? Um, so, Phil, you got a lot of women. Uh, to me, this this opens up a, a can of worms, right? I mean, I can tell you anecdotally from a bodybuilding perspective, um, I've heard, I've seen women that competed in open competitions talk about how wildly and and seemingly positively they respond to androgens, right? It's um, the the results, the physical results, I think, are going to be dramatic. 
I don't know. I, I'm just ignorant on this. Is it common for doctors to actually put women on an androgen replacement or I don't know any thoughts you might have Phil for women who lift in the the role of testosterone in their bodies and that kind of thing no I think it's becoming a lot more common but just as much as male hormone replacement has become more common uh, I think they're both coming along and I think it started god it was years ago that like Suzanne Summers went out and uh, started being a proponent of it oh. uh, via god what was that there's a book that goes uh, Life Extensions Foundation. Mm. So she was kind of with them and did a big article on it and how it saved her life and blah, 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 blah. But anyways, yeah, it's becoming it's definitely becoming much more common. Um, my wife recently, about a year ago, started uh, hormone replacement therapy, mm -hmm. and it includes testosterone. Mm -hmm. um, I think the tough part is, well, as anybody else, I mean, you got to get, like with mine, it's figuring out where you need to be. Um, and part of that for a male is also like, at least with my doctor was let's figure out where you feel best and where your estrogen levels don't jack up. Because I mean, let's, let's face yeah. it. It's not natural. Basically throughout the rest of my life, when my levels were normal, I was never having to take like a hormone, something to block estrogen. So <laughs> if you're having to do that, I suspect you're probably higher than your body is normally wants to be. Um, so, I mean, with women, it's kind of the same thing. And it's uh, as far as their estrogen levels, though, like we talked about before the show, guys are easy. Like, we have this range that we're in all the time. Uh, whereas women's, you know, you got the ovulatory phase and the luteal phase, and it's all over the freaking place. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. um, as far as that goes, it's, it's much harder. Um, I can tell you just through experience, the doctors and the women I've dealt with, it's a lot based, again, on how. Let's find out where you feel great again and don't have any side effects yeah. um, type of thing. So, And then you're going to still fit within that range. But their range is as huge as ours. You know, ours is like 300 to 1,100. Theirs is 6 to 90. <laughs> There's yeah. a big difference between 90 and 6. So right. um, yeah. slowly figuring that out. And I think all of us interested in in fitness and looking good and moving weight around is probably where all the women I know would want to, I want to get up towards that 90 range. <laughs> so, right. uh, and it's just figuring out if you can get there and not have any side effects of hair loss and acne and blah, 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 you know? So, right. Yeah. I, I think it's it, just because they're naturally much lower levels of androgens, right. That, a any amount is just going to have a more dramatic effect, I think, on a woman because you you become a super physiologic so quickly. Yes, you know, like oh, you yeah. said. Whereas guys have a much bigger range, you know, if you imagine that thousand scale, if you will, yes. uh, to play within. Uh, yeah, so they're going to shoot up very rapidly, I would think. And then, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't I don't want to get into a whole discussion of different types of androgens and all that. I mean, bioidentical, and we might I might actually ask Cassandra Forsyth to come on the show. We haven't had her on in a long time, and uh, she has a lot of knowledge in this area. And I, I have yeah. another friend, um, Dr. Scanlon, and she looks at hormone fluctuations across the month and what it does to strength and reflexes. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty cool, too. So, um, yeah, it, it, on one level, I almost feel a little sexist that I, I just know much more about the male scales, you know, and all this kind of stuff than about uh, women. Uh, Mike, what about you? Um, concerns for those who are... Uh, to quote the email, skirting the edge and not wishing yeah. to have vocal changes, etc. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that much about women's hormones, to be honest. I know the basics, but I do work with some 
you know, women who have various, you know, issues related to that, whether it's, you know, menopause or PCOS or other things going on. And I do look at the numbers, but, you know, they're obviously working directly with their endocrinologist or their physician to get everything changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people I have worked with, it's kind of an ongoing thing. It's not like you get it set and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. just put it on cruise. You're good for yeah. years. It's, you know, their stress level will change it. Their training will change it. Their, you know, all sorts of other moving parts are going on, even when they're, you know, coordinating with their endocrinologist. And the biggest part is usually having them find a physician that's, you know, knowledgeable and willing to work with them. You know, if you go into the doc and they're like, oh, well, we'll find what's good for you. And then, oh, just don't worry about it. Like, no, you should <laughs> have at least some pattern of when you're going to come back, when you're going to yeah. get checked again. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're not going to do that, then I would run the other way. And most physicians are going to do that anyway. That's very common. Um, but and the last thing, too, is that if you especially with women, the risk is if you start getting out of that physiologic range or trying to get really close to it, like you guys said, it's easy to overshoot that. Uh And some of those changes, while it hasn't been super well documented, can be kind of permanent relatively fast. And that's the thing that would make me really nervous, I guess. Yeah, sort of like structural changes and stuff. Right. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that's the hard part about women is... You guys got the shaft on that. As yeah. far as <laughs> as far as even, I mean, let's face it. I mean, as far as even uh, performance enhancing drugs, I yeah. mean, guys can get away with it a lot easier without having some dramatic change to their physical. Well, a dramatic change to their physical self that they weren't wanting. So that's more uh, permanent ish. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we all want the to be leaner and bigger muscles and things like that, but you know. I don't know any woman that wants a beard no, <laughs> so, right, yeah. and things like that. But. Permanently gravelly voice, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, no. And again, yeah, I don't want to get into a polypharmacy discussion, but that's why in yeah. bodybuilding, at least uh, a women would, they would find things that have a higher anabolic to androgenic ratio when they're considering yeah. that stuff. But again, working with a physician to do that legally and properly, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a doctor is going to put you on nandrolone or, you know, something else that might be yeah. a little more female friendly. I don't think that's going to happen. So they're left with the more androgenic stuff as their only option would be my concern, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But you guys have been around long enough. You can see females who started competing and then you sadly watch them over the years and you can usually get a pretty good idea which ones are going out of the physiologic range. And oh, yeah. yeah. After many years, it Oh, that's it, wise, it, right? Yeah, you watch. So good. <laughs> you're around long enough, yeah, and you watch some of them kind of. Uh, I don't want to say wreck themselves, but you you see no. some people with some long lasting, and you know what looked good in the first couple of years, they probably felt like a million bucks starts mm-hmm. to kind of take its toll. Yes. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I mean, I can just speak on the being in the regular range, the safe range with a doctor. I would say the biggest benefits are the same as men. It's the have you have energy again, you know, and all that stuff is what is what I have seen. Um, your sex drive comes back. Um, you're not it, so there's some depression going on. A lot of times that goes away. Mm-hmm. Things like that. If you are clinically low, you know, and you get it corrected, I, I would say that most of the benefits are exactly the same as us guys. 
So as far as going to a physician and getting it corrected again. Yeah, so. and there, obviously there's going to be some blood work issues that are going to differ for women. Like a doctor is going to check a man's uh, prostate-specific antigen, right, PSA. Yeah. Well, yeah. women are – that's not an issue with them, so they're not going to yeah. worry about, you know, enlarged prostate not being able to pee <laughs> or who knows what, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But there are lots of things to consider. It's not just total T. It's free mm-hmm. T, mm-hmm. you know, and the difference there, of course, is you have – proteins in your blood like shbg which Mm -hmm. bind with testosterone so only a smaller amount of it is free and there's there's a lot of debate among the nerds about how critical the free t thing is um but the idea would be though that the free testosterone is what's well not bound up with sex Mm -hmm. hormone binding globulin it can get into the cells and do its thing you know and that kind of stuff but um, which is another interesting thing with women women have like twice as much shbg than men um, yep. In on fact, the scale. This, no, so I mean, right away, you're, you're, you're. That's another reason why you're kind of behind the the game as far yeah. as testosterone goes. Yeah. You know? I so. I actually once wrote an article for T Nation about I called it like releasing the hostage or something because diet wise, yeah. like when you fast for long periods, not only does your LH go down and the stimulus mm-hmm. for testosterone go down, but SHBG can go up. It has like an inverse yeah. relationship with insulin, right? So you're eating and insulin's high a lot. SHBG is down, so you you could be releasing the hostage, if you will, you know. Yeah. And I, I just it was just some speculation and fun stuff that I had written on on T Nation. But this next question, we're going to squeeze in one more, and it's about this. Um, this is from Damon. He says, "Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for the great podcast. I started listening when I was undergoing some rehab for a few knee ligaments over a year ago. Um, I have continued listening weekly for the great insight and perspective." I just listened to episode 450 regarding testosterone replacement therapy. This spawned a couple follow-up questions that I am wondering that you can offer some opinions on. During my knee rehab, uh, I had some blood work done, and it looked like I was somewhat, somewhat low in serum test, 300-ish, but had SHBG, uh, 200 mm-hmm. elevation, which I believe affects free testosterone levels. That could also produce similar symptoms. Uh, now that I am out of that part of my life, I'm still experiencing some of the classic symptoms of low T. I'm starting to resume my self-education for the year. So this is a great uh, release. I think it means the episode here to kick off uh, to start my year. So, yes. So, Damon, you're right. Uh, SHBG is part of that. Like I said, if you want to actually look at uh, some reference stuff, it's probably a little dated now. But I did speculate on some of that stuff once upon a time. And it is something you you do have to consider. And like I said, it's one of the other reasons we were talking about bulking earlier. If you're bulking all the time, your insulin levels are high because you're eating all the time. You're probably reducing SHBG and freeing testosterone more. So there's a lot of things that, again, interconnected that make these things these things work. Uh, now, he has a question for Mike. He says, uh, one key point was finding a good doctor to work with. I live in Minnesota. I was wondering if Dr. Nelson may have a recommendation for an endocrinologist or a rejuvenation clinic. Uh, selecting one is rather daunting, and it would help greatly um, if you could help me with any of this. Um, what would be your initial advice to that, Mike? Yeah, my initial advice would be it depends on one, if you're doing it through your insurance or if you're just doing it out of pocket, right? Because some places take insurance, some places don't. So that makes a difference. If you have a super high deductible like I do, um, so I have to pay for my own healthcare insurance, it's way cheaper to do it not through my insurance. Um, and most states will allow you to get blood. I just had my blood drawn yesterday. 
Uh, so the guy I work with is actually remote. So we'll look at it, and if, if something's off, then I'm going to go back to my doc and say, hey, look at these numbers. This is kind of wonky. My doc's going to look at me a little weird that I had my own blood work done. Right, yes. I imagine. <laughs> but it's a third of the cost if I run it, you know, through through them. So, mm-hmm. um, But, yeah, like if you're looking for just online uh, blood work, uh, you can look up uh, Dr. Ben House or Functional Med Costa Rica. I think he probably still has a wait list, so I'm not sure if he's taken any new people. Um, but, you know, if he needs a local referral, he can just send me the email. Like, I know a couple other people here I can send them off to. Again, I don't know if they're taking anyone or not. But I guess my thought would be if, you know, are you doing under insurance or not? If you're not, maybe worth just getting a real basic blood panel if you haven't had one done in a while. You know, get a complete blood panel, see what's going on. You know, if something is kind of wonky, then just kind of go from there. Yeah. We did suggest uh, last time that you might want to look for, again, even doing a Google search. Like around here, we've got a couple of huge hospital chains like Suma, Cleveland Clinic, uh, and look for men's health. Like just yeah. type that in. That might help. Or, or uh, you know, endocrinologist, men's health, that kind of thing. That At least then you might work with someone. Hopefully you could find someone that will take a serious look if you do external blood work like i don't know if my physician would even he'd be like well that's nice lonnie but i gotta yeah. run this myself fine yeah sometimes know. they get kind of pissy yeah. but if you're paying out of pocket it's like man at yeah. least for yeah. me i opted to save myself a bunch of money see what's going on and then if i need to go to the next step i know what you know what direction to kind of go yeah um, i was shocked actually i went to a local physician here in northeast ohio and um I saw the pre-insurance cost for all the blood work that she wanted. You know, and it was a, a standard panel, but it was also test, free T, PSA, you know, um, just a lipid panel, all this stuff. Uh, and it was in the thousands, yep. thousands. And I'm like, okay, I can't do this just because you're curious, honey. Can we? Can yeah. we boil this down to like four things that I actually need? You know, kind of stuff like that. But. Um, Oh, God, yeah, paying yourself will change that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I went the route before, long story short, that I had insurance and had all the blood work done. We submitted part of it through a physician, and what happened was my insurance raised the deductible uh, when I was employed to uh, 5000 a year, and I couldn't get the blood drawn until January because the clinic, the blood draw place, kept screwing up. And I ended up paying five grand out of my own pocket for a bunch of panels. Yeah. Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. And you're talking, yeah, I mean, to get it done yourself, and they're they're literally done at the same labs. Like most of the stuff is done like lab core. Right, lab core. It's like you're you're talking in the low hundreds. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Complete panels for a guy, you know, two to maybe 600, depending on what you're looking at and how in depth you want to go if you pay on your own. Oh, yeah. You it's know, its that's industry. pretty in-depth. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And now, it's very doable for most people. We're almost out of time. Uh, there were some other questions here about, is there a free testosterone marker you would use, et cetera? Uh, I, I'm not going to go into that a lot. Just know that, yeah, you should really look at free T and total T. Um, yeah. You, you know, your doctor saying, oh, your, your free T looks okay. But again, if your total T is like in the 200s, that's still, I would still say that's probably not okay. You know, again, it depends on how the doctor is going to interpret and how much value he ascribes to total T versus free. The other one is, um, Phil, let's ask you first, regarding testing, how many data Mm -hmm. points 
would you want before you make a decision about getting on TRT, uh, et cetera? So, my, you know, Mike was kind of bitching last week, and, and fairly so, about these things go up and down. One little sample is not a great way to make a decision. What would you suggest, and how 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 far apart, he says, if it's more than once? Well, I'm kind of weird because mine were like way off. I was like, <laughs> yours were in the shitter. <laughs> yeah, I was like a menopausal woman. You know, I mean, so I we had four done with me, and like I said, mine the highest came out of a 42. Oof. So out of four, and I'm like, yeah, it's time to get something done. You know, but I mean, like I had nothing, no test near the range. So, um. You know, and then I have other people. I have a guy at my gym that's getting his his tested, and he's a little low, but he's also massively overweight. Yeah. So for him, it's like, dude, you don't need it. You need to get in check. <laughs> you get your diet in check, and it's going to come back around. You're at like 280. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you're you're carrying around 150 pounds of extra weight. That's your problem. You know, your problem is not your 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 endocrine system. It's your mouth. So he may have sleep apnea talking yeah, about his and mouth. He has sleep apnea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, and he just got put on he got put on a CPAP and everything else. Yep. It's like that's that's the issue you're facing. So yeah. it depends, is what I'd say. I mean, it depends on the other issues you're facing. You need to look at your yourself as a whole and and while we're talking about getting your test done yourself, I mean I think those things are great. And they uh, I think everybody should do them at least once a year and then let somebody qualified look at them. Definitely. <laughs> you know, if oh, there's yeah. something, basically, I get them. It's like, okay, everything looks in range. I'm good. You know, if there's something out of range, then I take it to somebody who you know, I'm. I'm taking it to somebody more qualified. Yeah. I am not a, a specialist. There's so much so. interconnectedness, like you were mentioning. If somebody's really over fat, uh, because yes. estrogen is a site for aromatization of testosterone, right? Their estrogen levels yep. could be much higher. So, like, you don't want to say, oh, take somebody who's very over fat. A, a, a certain amount of testosterone may actually, over time, raise their estrogen levels higher or worse, if you will, than than someone who's much leaner. You know, so there's even individual differences in body comp and, yeah. Or what mm -hmm. if you don't run a PSA test, or you don't run some of these other, you know, again peripheral things, estradiol and PSA and some of this other stuff. Then uh, all you have is your testosterone free or uh, or bound testosterone, and then that's not the whole picture. No, you, you know. And that's, yeah, definitely, I mean, I would get full panels done. You want to know where all that stuff's at. And yeah. the good thing is then you can get your cholesterol checked and everything at the same time. So, um, yeah, if you can afford like it. with me, I've always came up low on, on my thyroid. But it was like right at the bottom of the scale. And I'm like, well, I'm, the, I'm okay. You know, I feel yeah, good. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like I'm not going to attack that too when, when, I'm, when I feel good. So, uh you know, it's it's things like that, and somebody else might take that and be like, "Oh, I'm a little low. I need to blow it up." You know, that's a good point. Symptoms. So, the, the doctor really has to say, "Hey, li I'm listening. How do you feel?" You know, yeah. your energy, your focus, your sex drive, your sleep. Yeah, they need to. And if you're saying, "Listen, I feel great on this current dose," you know, and I didn't before, they really should yes. be able to at least factor that in your signs and yes. symptoms. Yeah. Yep. And it's because these scales are so varied. I mean, there's a reason yeah, it doesn't there's say reference ranges. Yes, it's not. It, that's there's <laughs> a reason it doesn't say testosterone is 647. Exactly. That's where you all yeah. need to be. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Mike, uh, frequency, like how many times would you get a draw, and how far apart, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, I think with most guys I work with, if I just simplify it, and even women, you should have a 
very good blood panel drawn at least once a year. Uh-huh. You know, ideally probably twice a year, and I'll be the first to admit that I've sucked completely at doing that. <laughs> My last one was uh, two years ago, and I just had one the other day, but I'm doing better at it now. So, and if you see something wonky, you know, talk to your doc, and I would probably want to get it drawn again at least once. And like what Phil said, you know, do you have other lifestyle factors going on? You know, a big one I think that gets missed is with testosterone is sleep. Yeah. So I would ask him about that. If you've got, you know, over a 17-inch size neck, a good chance you probably have sleep apnea. But even some people who are, are thinner can have sleep apnea, and that will just wreck your testosterone levels too. So could be other things that are going on. You know, try to run those down and then get tested again, see if you come back maybe. If not, you know, then you can decide to do more kind of invasive type things. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you can afford it, it's not something I would do every just two weeks or something. It's like body no. composition. It's no. Just, it's folly. Yeah. You're wasting your time and money to do it too frequently, you know. But Yeah. Yeah. And there's some people who, like, they'll look at your stuff and say, like, my homocysteine was super high before. Huh. Like, all right, let's try some of this stuff. And then I want you to get at least that one redrawn in six months. Right. So it's not like you have to do the whole entire thing again. But if you're working on something that's a little wonky, maybe just have those, you know, drawn within a set period of time. All right. All right. Thanks, fellas. That's good stuff. Uh, We'll follow up next week. Yep. See you later. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for phil one for fortress and one for myself dr lowry and they're thematic so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, Uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio 
for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.